0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Soup Dragons, because I recently caught up with Ross Sinclair to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. He was as we said, a member of the band, the Scottish Indie Band. And very recently they've had their John Peel and BBC sessions reissued, all four of them, on the precious recordings of London. Do check those recordings out. You can get them via that website and Bandcamp and everything else. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat that gets edited out we get down to that exciting subject that was the early point of ross it's over to you
1: yeah i mean for me it's a familiar old tale it's uh it was punk rock for me um i had a kind of uh a pal a friend of the family who was kind of like an older brother and uh he was a couple of years it was a year year age in fact and i'm 66 I'm just a couple of years younger but he uh, he was kind of into a lot of these kind of punk bands and he took me along to a lot of early gigs so My first gig was 1979 Stranglers at the Glasgow Apollo, which was one of these big kind of massive venues that was, uh, but it had a lot of fantastic sort of punk shows Mm -hmm. after the initial kind of wave of punk where Glasgow councillors banned punk in Glasgow. So you had to go to like the bungalow bar in Paisley, which is a sort of satellite town just, just outside Glasgow to see any shows. But by then it was quite kind of mainstream. And in that seventy nine eighty saw Stranglers clash the Dam, and the Banshees, Devo, all, all these kind of bands at the time. And so for me, it was more kind of um, stepping into that sort of live scene and feeling the excitement of that, and of course the the sense of being able to do that yourself, and uh, and then kind of buying buying the records from there. So um, that that was for me the kind of start of it
0: yeah um, did you come from a musical family at all were your parents at all musical or
1: not really no i mean my uncle my mother's brother had uh he had uh he had been in bands and things and uh in the 60s he had sort of uh managed a sort of glasgow band from i called the poets who were, were quite kind of Had a moment, and in fact, they eventually went down to London and they were stolen off him by Andrew Lou Goldham uh, before he kind of found the stones. So, he they had a few singles and I think a couple of sort of charted things, but after he was looking after them, so he was kind of involved in that. And then, but he disappeared to the States with his family in the late 60s. So, um, but I suppose it was kind of that there, but really, apart from that, um, really not, um as i say it was this more kind of exposure to the sort of uh, that kind of energy and dynamism of sort of, i suppose post punk really um but no there wasn't kind of much much at home there. But, oh, you know, typically, you know, I think age 16 or so, I'd saved up some money from a paper run and was deciding whether to buy a motorbike or a guitar in the days so where you buy like a 50cc motorbike when you're like 16. And uh, my mother, completely outraged, said, Look, I'll give you a bit extra if you buy the guitar instead of the the motorbike. So that was maybe what yes, put well, me in that's the a, direction.
0: That was a wise decision. I, I got the 50cc. Moped, really. Yeah, (laughs) it was a Yamaha, and it was very exciting. And it managed to get up to thirty-two miles an hour if you were really lucky, but it was quite a slog, really. And to be honest, so many people had bad accidents; it was unbelievable.
1: Oh, absolutely, nothing worse than an underpowered motorbike, I
0: think, (laughs) or just a very sloppy driver who was a bit drunk. You know, it was like Um. lots of people, you know, hobbling with, you know. I don't know. It was just, it wasn't good. People just got on an iPad and went off, didn't they, and just hit a tree. So um it wasn't It wasn't very good at all. So when you were, I mean, did you have any, did you say you didn't have any brothers or sisters that influenced you, but you had a friend who was?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, you know, a classic story. My folks split up when I was 10 or 11, and uh my mum went back out to work and things. And uh so it was a sort of, we had the family who lived a couple of streets along and they were friends, so I would go there after school and things and uh and you know this guy he was called Neil Mingus. He is called Neil Mingus, he's still a pal and uh you know we had a lot of kind of musical kind of exploits um and here a sort of bedroom up in the attic and eventually we got a drum kit in there and got some amps and some guitars and so we used to kind of from quite an early kind of uh, stage uh we used to kind of muck about there quite a lot um you know first of all playing with big joy division phase and sort of very early 80s and we do lots of cover versions and uh which so we'd muck about there so and in fact because i'd played the drums a little bit there um eventually although you know like many bands at the start of the Super dragons there was lots of uh lots of kind of weavings into the beginning of it um Shashil uh put a, an advert up in mccormick's music which was one of the big music stores sadly now gone in glasgow uh, looking for people for a band and then um sean uh sean came to a gig at the art school where I was playing with this other band called Gods for All Occasions uh, with my friend I mentioned Neil Mingus and uh, Raymond McGinley who later went on to be in Teenage Fan Club Um, so we were playing at this gig at the art school and Sean came along and liked it and said oh I'm trying to get this other band started do you you play the drums and because I'd mucked about in uh, Neil's bedroom I could say oh yeah I could give that a go so so that yes. was kind of the start of... Uh, Did
0: you ever come across people like Alan Horne or Alan McGee or anybody of that kind of... In those not,
1: not so much. I mean, um, although, you know, Postcard and Orange Juice in particular and Edwin were always uh, big influences, um, I suppose it was a wee bit later, you know... I went to art school in 1984 and i think that gig i mentioned was very early 85 and that sean came along to at the very start of the soup dragons um so already that was uh really two or three years after sort of postcard when alan horn had kind of you know he sort of stopped it and as far as i could as far as you were aware at the time he just sort of disappeared. You know, postcard first version stopped. Um and of course McGee was already in London. Uh he was working for the railways and you know, so at the start in Glasgow, they weren't they weren't kind of um so much of an influence at that time, although certainly all the records that uh Alan Horn put out in postcard were absolutely kind of influential.
0: Yeah. Because, cause, yeah, because you, you're that bit um, two years young, younger. You I know, was, but it's <laughs> incredible at that time. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? So, yeah, so I, I left, yeah, that was 16 when I was 1980s. Yeah, so we had the Thatcher period, and then we had that, you know, the the Falkland crisis and the miners' strike in Greenham Common, and then, yeah, just, just a, a huge amount of unemployment. So when you hit 16, did you say you went to art school in 82?
1: Yeah, no, 84 it was. Uh, uh, so you
0: did A-levels?
1: yeah in scotland it's a slightly different they're called kind of hires and advanced hires but yeah i stayed on at school till well we call it sixth year i don't know what form that is in england equivalent but basically i was sort of 17 um and then uh yeah i went to art school and kind of left home and kind of went into glasgow and kind of didn't look back from there really and i suppose you know it was part of the kind of music um exposure to lots of different kinds of music as well but i guess i felt kind of growing up in the suburbs that going to art school and moving into glasgow i kind of you know was able to find a kind of a group of people that felt much more like a sort of family as cheesy as that sounds um yeah that i could relate
0: to i just yeah it was i'm you know it's a massive moment in a way leaving home and then sort of going to you know like an art school, which you know all the cool dysfunctional kids went to, didn't they really didn't yeah,
1: it? absolutely i mean it was uh and particularly although I have worked at Glasgow School of Art for a long time now um at that time there was uh there was perhaps even more of a freedom then in the very first year to to really experiment a bit more and uh you know it was in the days of as you know Full grants and uh, being able to sign on in the summer and get yes, my did
0: that as well. I mean, it was amazing. You know, yeah. Christmas, Easter, and the summer they couldn't even be bothered it. And I think they got housing benefit as well as some. Yeah, benefits.
1: no, we did definitely. And uh, I remember the first year at art school, you even got a materials allowance as well. You could go and buy some bits of gear and stuff. So
0: and I think yeah. lecturers. I remember lecturers from Norwich you know, reminisced about the old days where they just spent all afternoon in the pub, you know.
1: (laughs) yeah, Catch them before lunchtime, yeah, definitely. And
0: then they would be there and talk about art at the pub with their students, and that was it really, wasn't it? Yeah. It was was a very free time, but you had that, it was like a three-year, well, just have a good time and, you know, at least you get, you know, um, yeah, just make sure you get something for your final piece of work in, in the third year, you'll be fine.
1: Yeah, although for me, it ended up about bloody 10 years because I had so many years out when the Sub-Dragon started. I kind of uh, eventually, uh, you know, you have a year out and then had another year out and then had another year out. And then uh, eventually uh, I went back and said, oh, can I have another year out? And the the folk in the registry office said, uh, uh, no, you've got to finish your degree within seven years. So if you don't come back this year, forget it sort of thing. So so that, that, was, uh, that was part of the... Yeah.
0: So when because one for me kind of 83 was a massive year because the smiths appear and then sort of for five years indie pop you know really gets that kind of i suppose the band who really shapes sort of everything you know they break into the mainstream charts even though they're on rough trade records and they they have a huge influence so what was that period like for you because before that we had like simple minds you two echo and the bunny men julian Cope, but there was definitely a vibe from sort of 83 to 87 where there was that you know, suddenly jingly-jangly bands appeared. And you also got, you know, Big Flame, Bogshed, A-Witness, you know, bands like that as well, Stump, that were yeah. quite awkward and interesting. But John Peel was playing all this stuff, and then he was also playing stuff from, you know, Welsh bands like Bath Bluggy and the Bundu Boys. And it was just a glorious period. So I just wondered what it was like for for you as the, the Soup Dragons formed in 1984.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, it's like so critical. It was maybe like 18 months after that period you're mentioning, and it just uh, felt then, I don't know, you know, it was, I don't know. I mean, the Smiths, yeah, but uh, I remember seeing the Smiths at uh, the Queen Margaret uh, Union at uh, Glasgow University, uh and it was the only where coincidentally i was there last night actually again i hadn't been for years see dinosaur junior who were fantastic but uh it was the only gig i've ever been at the smiths where somebody punched me in the face for like no reason and i just thought god so much for like peace love and waving flowers around you know it's kind of the audience were kind of going mental but i don't know i don't think the smiths for us in the soup dragons i mean Certainly it was interesting to see the Smiths on top of the Pops and things, and that was definitely a sort of sea change, and, um, you know, sort of guitar bands, independent bands being much more in the mainstream. Um, but I don't think any of us were particularly kind of massively sort of into the Smiths. I mean, I think at that time we were still, I don't know, looking at sort of television personalities, swell maps, kind of... I don't know, a wee bit more kind of maybe, I don't know, less kind of, I don't know, I suppose maybe at that age, you know, as soon as the thing you're interested in becomes mainstream, you maybe kind of start looking for other things you know yes
0: and, uh, it's very disappointing when that people know what you're talking about <laughs> isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah which discussion. almost sounds like a smith's b-side or something like that. we <laughs> hate it when our friends become successful or something yes,
0: this is true and what and what art were you drawn to what artists what, what was it that you were studying or um yes fascinated by
1: well yeah i mean the, the department that i studied in at Glasgow school of art where i now teach and have been teaching for the last kind of 25 plus years and a professor of contemporary fine art practice there um it's it's called sculpture and environmental art and you know, from the very beginning we had a really charismatic um head of the department um called David Harding. And he was very interested and developed the department in a way where really he encouraged everybody to think about art outside of traditional gallery sort of settings. So art in public spaces, art in um you know that could be you know posters billboards um you know t-shirts badges things like that but also what,
0: art what about land art like richard long and people like that and, and yeah worthy
1: yeah definitely that was uh that was part of the the things we were looking at yeah very much so art in uh art in context really and uh there was a David had taken this maxim from this uh, arts organization called Artist Placement Group, who had been very active in the 70s and and early 80s, putting artists in particular contexts as a residency say and they had one in the home office and they had one i think it was in shell or bp oil so you'd have an artist in there and no one knew what they were supposed to be doing and they were there for a year and kind of did all these kind of very kind of crazy things but they had this kind of maxim statement that the context is half the work so whether you've got your work up on a billboard in the street or whether you're working in a gallery somewhere or whether you're maybe installing something in an office block or you know you're you know, nowadays, you know, maybe you're doing something online, or you, you know, finding another place where art can engage an audience. The context that you put that in is kind of half of the work, where somebody will engage with it, where they'll come across it, and kind of begin to maybe have some sort of dialogue with the work. So, so these were the sort of things that I was kind of thinking
0: about. It does that sound time. a bit like something from Unbox, the festival of Brexit that came out this year, which. No one heard about, but it was quite conceptual, wasn't it, really unboxed. Did you come across this kind of, I don't know if I of Brexit?
1: Well, I mean, I, I saw with a kind of, uh, I suppose, extreme uh, scepticism how the Festival of Brexit, you know, became rebadged and uh, the money was sort of uh, slipped around. And I did in Scotland there were there were a few interesting projects that came out of that, but you know, nobody mentioned that the, the that was you know previously known as Festival of Brexit. But I didn't, I don't know if I saw that one at all. What what went on in that
0: one? Well, I think I think they're just about to have the inquest, you know because I think they got one hundred and was it one hundred and thirty million pounds to do this kind of event that Theresa May had to see and then this guy said, "Well, I'll do it, but it's obviously going to be we're going to have to rebrand it because we can't call it, you know that. And then yeah. they called it Unboxed, and they just had a lot of conceptual bits and pieces around it. Oh,
1: All right, so that was the overall title for the for the whole. Well, thing. yes,
0: and I don't think a lot of people heard about it, and not a million yeah. people turned up. So I think the, some mps want to have a bit of a chat about what what we got for our money which was obviously that's still to be played out but obviously he's you know the person's going to say well i got the money well, i've spent it here the receipts um you know yeah you-
1: which is more you can say for this 36 billion in ppe that seemed to disappear down the drain courtesy of the tory government you know <laughs> so i think yes. uh, in in contrast the uh, 120 million or whatever it is uh So the whole
0: thing, I mean, it hadn't really been thought through. You know, it's a bit like, we want this celebration. It's like, well, we can't, you know, how is that going to work? It's not like... The, the opening of the Olympics, you know, we had in 2012 with this great celebration and, you know, that... no, which I think
1: is probably what they hoped it would be, a really jingoistic sort of yes. patriotic sort of, uh, and when you can't kind of hang it on that flagpole, it becomes a lot more complicated and less uh, easy to kind of sum up in a kind of snappy. Well, I mean, there was there was one actually interesting project that I think it just happened in Scotland. It was called Dandelion. Um, and it was actually run by a guy called Angus Farquhar, who used to run a really interesting arts organization called NVA. And before that, actually, years ago, he was in test department, for example. Oh. I think he, played, he was the one who played the bagpipes, but I can't be absolutely sure on that. But that, that was an interesting project involving a lot of people, and it was, actually talking a lot about growing food and uh, local gardens and there had a lot of people setting up all these kind of experiments and growing things and setting up kind of guerrilla gardens and that, that seemed like quite an interesting notwithstanding where the money came from or how it was badged in the first place but there were some interesting things definitely that they came out of that and in fact we had some locally here that were yeah really very dynamic so You know maybe in the final analysis there'll be some things out of that that uh
0: it'll be fine they'll have it they'll they'll all get a bit sweaty and a bit you know pointy fingers but that'll be fine so going back to the band so when when did the band sort of form and and sort of what was the moment that it's like right there's the four of you and we're going to call ourselves the soup dragons
1: yeah, I mean as I, as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning like I think most bands there were there was a kind of um probably 6 months or so where you know um you know the first rehearsal I went to uh there was actually there was another there was a, another woman who was sort of had been playing the drums for a couple of weeks and there's another guy called Ian Whitehall who's a guitar player who uh stayed in the band for for a wee while afterwards um and Sean and Shashil so th- there's a few rehearsals and a few weeks went by where there was a sort of testing out of uh, different things but actually you know that 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 took a wee while but um, we had uh, I'd forgotten this until I don't know one of the we we're they had the guys rounded the house uh, a few well, a few months ago now but Jim is reminding us that um, in fact there used to be a great pub in Glasgow called The Griffin um, that was a real kind of old man-style pub, but all the kind of music folk used to go there on a Friday night. And um, Sean had, uh, he worked in Flip, you know, this kind of clothing store, 50s Americana kind of thing. I think it started in Newcastle and there's one in Glasgow. There was a couple in London as well. I'm not sure, but anyway, uh, Bobby Gillespie had, there was a great, this great club in Glasgow called Splash One which only really lasted about 18 months but had fantastic bands from sonic youth and wire to the loft and then weather prophets june brides uh soup dragons um oh god uh, i think a certain ratio played oh, just loads of fantastic bands really cheap great kind of and that was kind of organized not only by Bobby Gillespie but um, a bunch of other people around at the time um, and anyway Primal Scream were built to be playing at one of the early uh, early iterations of that and uh, bobby had been talking to sean in flip where he worked and anyway that friday night and the griffin were all there and lo and behold bobby asked sean if uh, the soup dragons would support primal scream at this uh this gig at splash one which was happening like the next weekend sort of thing um so sean rushes over and says oh, bobby's just asked if we'd support them um so that was very exciting but uh, poor uh, ian the the first guitar player he i think he was away in holiday or something and he couldn't make it so we got jim McCullough in, and the the first rehearsal we had as you say with the four of us there um but there was also another there's a tambourine player back in vocals a woman called jackie no. who uh was there for a while and in fact the first uh The first uh, photos and the first single that we did for Subway that didn't come out, um, she sort of appeared on that. But the first time the four of us and Jackie as well got together, um, that was really exciting. It just seemed to, you know, again, I think it's a familiar tale, but the right personnel just got in place and it just really clicked, you know um jim's fantastic guitar player great rhythm guitar player sean was bringing in all these kind of songs that he was writing five a week and quite straightforward kind of rhythm guitar nice little melodies on top you know count them off start them bang really kind of um tight from the beginning so really that that would have been oh i don't know 1985 at some point i can't quite remember months wise um but, yeah, that was the start. And, you know, we support Primal Scream at that gig and it went down phenomenally well. Uh, and, you know, the crowd were super responsive. Um, and, you know, it just really kicked off from there. That was the, the beginning. And, and really quickly, everything sort of gained momentum. And um...
0: Yes. So you did your first, the first single was this Flexi Disc, Was that the first time you went in the studio to do the if you were the only girl in the world
1: yeah we went in and did uh we did a kind of demo uh which was a sort of five track demo which i think was called you have some too uh i think that's what it was called and uh it had uh, some of the five of the songs that we were kind of just rehearsing in these super early days and that that was one of them. And uh, when Shashil proposed to to make this flexi disc to go along with his fancy pure popcorn, which he did with a couple of pals, um, it, we that was the sort of best sounding one from what was, admittedly, a wee bit of a kind of rough session, mm. and uh, which I think. W- I think we I could be wrong. I think we recorded that in a place called Center City Sound in Glasgow, where we used to rehearse and that had a visa sort of studio in it as well, and I think we recorded that in there and um and yeah, we took that track off it. And yeah, as I said, when that when that was released, I um, oh, was it ne- Neil Taylor, Neil McCormack. God, oh, sorry, Neil. Neil, he wrote a big book about C eighty six. Oh, um, that's
0: Neil Taylor. That's Neil one.
1: Taylor. Sorry, not Neil McCormack. Yeah, He's so,
0: more he, so he did this one, didn't he? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the other guy's more of a sort of TV pundit guy, isn't it? Apologies, yeah. Neil. Um,
0: yeah, he he
1: he reviewed it for NME and made its kind of single of the week. This flexi disc, which was. Uh, a joint effort with the legend. Uh, I don't know if you know the legend, uh, which was the sort of band name of Jerry thackeray who is also Everett True, who subsequently wrote a lot about Nirvana and uh, was quite pals with them. But his uh, his. Early musical incarnation was called the Legend, and he's a lovely guy. We used to stay with him in London. We used to stay with him sometimes. We stayed with Dan Tracy from the TV personalities quite often in his uh, flat in uh, Clapham. Yes. I recall. But how, how uh, do you
0: find Dan Tracy? Because he's quite a legend, isn't he? Dan? Well,
1: we were just we were all big fans of TV personalities, and uh, God, I can I can't honestly remember how. Probably a gig in Glasgow. Uh, again in that period you mentioned, the sort of eighty-three, eighty-four period where it was a bit of a kind of eclectic time. Um I, I honestly can't remember how we uh we managed to do that, but you know, I remember going down to do it might have been that the first John Peel session that's coming out on this these one of these precious releases. And uh I'm sure we went down to like well, it's a great story actually that um that Sean tells it's, uh that uh, John Walters phoned up Sean's house, you know, who was famous John Peel producer. Oh, yeah. And uh, said, uh, oh, you know, is, uh, is Sean there sort of thing? And Sean's mum shouts up the stairs, oh, Sean, it's some guy from the John Peel show. And Sean comes down and speaks to him. And uh, and John uh, Walters says, uh, you know, John would like you to do a session. Um, and uh, and Sean said to his credit, he said that, uh, oh, that's brilliant, but I don't think we can afford to get down to London, because we we didn't, you know, we absolutely skinned and didn't have any money. And uh, coincidentally, John Peel was doing a a gig at the QM again, the QM again, uh, 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 the the next weekend or something. And John Waters said, uh, oh, well, go and and say hello to John anyway, you know, when he's at the gig sort of thing. And so Sean went along and, uh, I mean, it's incredible. He said hello to John Peel and they had a wee chat and he heard this uh, this demo that you know was mentioned and that had been sent down to him. And anyway, uh, Peel uh, pulls out, I think it was 150 quid or something of his own money from his pocket and gives it to Sean and says, "Look, think this will get you down to London and be able to come and do the session." And Sean was like, yeah, "Absolutely fantastic!" <laughs> so Peel basically gave us the cash to go down to London, and I think that time we stayed at Dan's, and uh, you know, I think we took down the drum kit, took down like I don't know Fender Twin, a big amp that I had, and basically humped that down to London in the train, humped the whole thing across London on public transport, off to May to do the session. Um, <laughs> so i mean they, they were pretty uh yeah i mean you just kind of imagine doing all that now but uh oh, my God. of course yeah. as uh as the kids say now like you can't how did you do all that when mobile phones didn't exist and the internet wasn't there you know but of course you just uh you had a landline and, and made it work you know yes. so Or
0: well, we just went in the in the sort of phone box with two pieces and um, <laughs>
1: absolutely yeah
0: we'll just hung around the waiting for a phone call but did you be had you recorded a whole wide world had that come out on the subway organization before your john peel session no
1: i mean that was uh god i need to check the timeline of it all but no we did we recorded a single um that was supposed to come out on subway um that were it was a sort of a bunch of songs that were kind of uh a wee bit sort of transitional from that very early demo to um
0: was that the one kind of, the ep the, the sky the sun is in the sky
1: yeah yeah exactly um but to be honest we we kind of fallen out with subway um before that even kind of uh happened and in fact we uh it was never officially released, we weren't happy with it, with the cut of it and everything and the cover got all fucked up and, uh, you know, it was all the days of Letra set and all that and it got all damaged and it looked rubbish and we just weren't happy with it. So... um but they, they had been pressed up and everything. So although we we asked them not to put it out, I think over the years that's kind of like dribbled out a little bit. And, you know, there's uh, there's definitely some of those out there. But uh, but we were recording stuff up in Glasgow and that wasn't recorded um, specifically for that. You know, we were kind of recording things and, um, in studios that were quite cheap and quite uh, accessible to us. So... Yeah. Um, so,
0: so, so this your John Peel session. This was in February twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six. So this was kind of, I mean, winters in those days were grim. So you must have been um, shivering walking around London trying to with all your equipment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, honestly, uh, I can't remember. I think uh, um, I don't know. I, yeah, obviously, you know, when you're kind of, uh, we were all very young. Actually, you know, we were you know i think jim is still maybe 17 i don't know uh i think we're like 17 18 really kind of young um so i think you know we were just completely excited about kind of uh going to do the peel session and and kind of you know Going to Made of Eil was incredible. I mean, the studios are absolutely incredible. And, and did uh, you,
0: who was your producer? Was it Dale Griffith or was it um I
1: think that was uh I think that was a slightly later one. You've probably got all that pulling all that stuff up while we're talking, but it does say on the, the cover of the the New Precious ones, um I think I think it was either the second Pure one or one of the Janice Long ones that Dale Griffin uh engineered. Uh, and of course, you know, us being like 18, 19, whatever, we're completely oblivious to the fact that he was a drummer in mott the Hoople or whatever, you know, we were just kind of, I don't think we'd even heard of mott the Hoople at that point, so uh, it wasn't, um, but it was just, I mean, the, the sessions, I mean, obviously sessions still go on now, and the, you know, some great uh, Mark Riley ones obviously still happening, and uh, others on, you know, Radio Scotland, BBC Scotland have some great ones. But I mean, I just remember the pressure of going in and having to do it all in a day, you know, to do four songs and uh, no messing around. And uh, I think luckily at that point, you know, when we finally got there, humping all the drums and the gear and the amps and the guitars, we were so basic at that point, you know, as you can hear on the recordings, that uh, there wasn't much in the way of fancy overdubs and uh, string arrangements, or you know, whatever else. Then it was pretty much everything was done, you know, live and uh, just separated out a bit. And yes. uh,
0: well, it's it's you know, it still sounds good. And with this one, you recorded too too shy to say whole whole wide world learning to fall. Just mind your step, girls. So this was um, yeah, you did a good, a good four tracks. Had you re- rehearsed them to death, so you sort of had it completely down when you went to the studio.
1: Well, as I say, I think by then, um, God, the timeline of it all. Uh, obviously, the, the sort of. I think by then, you know, we'd been uh, we'd been going certainly a few months. by then, and uh, you know, as I say, this all started in. 85 so i think we'd have probably been going for six months by then um and we used to rehearse a lot uh you know really we used to do six hour rehearsals and uh you know i don't know three days a week four days a week even so we really we rehearsed a lot so um we were quite tight actually uh i mean okay you know no one was uh you know, we were kind of competent, uh, although I think I was probably, in fairness, still kind of learning how to play the drums. But, uh, but there's a real energy, and uh, even on the drums on those first uh, first records and the first certainly the, the I mean that first session, uh, oh, yeah. just straight ahead and uh, all energy. Um, but no, I mean we did, as I say, we rehearsed a lot, but not just as a you know as a band, not particularly for the for the Peel sessions
0: yes and did you get did um you get a manager at this stage was this the 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 ex former WAM manager who decided to um sign you up is this true
1: yeah jazz yeah i mean oh god again david i can't read the time the exact time scale of all this i can't kind of uh um remembered off the top of my head but i mean i think it was called big life uh, management and it was jazz summers and a guy called tim parry who actually looked after us who was great they were both great i mean t- jazz was an amazing guy i mean yeah he did but he managed Swam for a while but he did a lot of other things as well and uh He's a really interesting guy, really. uh, But, you know, he was a London managing manager guy as well. But I I think that came along, oh, my God, the time frame of it. You know, I think we were already playing reasonably regularly in London at that point because I think they came to see us a couple of times. Oh, God, my, you know, I think at that time we were probably still playing in pubs. Played it. Remember what a gig at Dingwalls, uh, and a couple. Not the living room. Uh, I think we we're a bit late for that. But there were a couple of sort of clubs that came in the wake of that. Uh, that was McGee's Club. Uh, but you know, upstairs in pubs, um, and then uh, yeah, yeah. So I think at that point, you know, we're playing a bit in London, and they came to see us, and. Uh, yeah they they just they really liked us really liked the energy and uh yeah offered us a sort of um management deal and uh you know you, I
0: mean, you became the darlings of the n m e didn't you as well they they did they give you the most amazing review write up ever
1: uh, i don't know i mean there was uh there were various kind of reviews and and different music papers um but yeah i think for a while we were kind of uh I mean, there was always a sort of detractors in that sort of early period where, oh, they just sound like the Buzzcocks or, you know, this, that and the other. Um, But but yeah, I mean, I think there was a really positive, uh, you know, that first kind of couple of years almost, it was just felt like it was, you know, you just don't realize at the time, but it just seemed effortless and easy. And everything you did was sort of better than the last thing and was more successful and you know maybe the first sort of three or four singles were sort of um like that and uh yeah it just sort of felt a bit like the world was your oyster and i suppose the big life thing they were you,
0: the first couple of singles and you know coming up to hang 10 they are incredibly catchy how did the? i mean what was the process of those coming together
1: well i mean at the start i mean as i say when sean came to see the band i was in you know it was called gods for all occasions and we were playing at the art school so i was kind of writing stuff for that and Shashil was writing and jim as well so we were all kind of writing things but as is often the way in bands um sean's songs just they just sounded like the soup dragons eventually so at that point he was he was really prolific and as i say we'd rehearse a lot and basically he would bring you know most of the songs in with them and have a basic sort of idea usually it was like a chord pattern and a little riff on top you know like in too shy to say or something yeah but it was just it was simple but as you say absolutely catchy as hell so he would sort of like he would kind of come in and uh show some of these things and we'd kinda of have a go at some of them. And from that really they just developed into songs and uh and the band the band kind of dynamic, if you like, took over with them and then I think took them somewhere. Um but they all most of those early ones, they all came from Sean. He was really it was really incredible actually. Every week he'd just bring more of them in and uh, <laughs> there was a period of, you know. Well, it went on for a while, you know, he's he's a great songwriter. uh,
0: Did you you start playing festivals? Because my first Glastonbury was 87. Did you play Glastonbury? We
1: did play. I think that was the year we played. Um, And, uh, yeah, that that was kind of interesting. It was... uh, god again i can't even remember how that uh that came about but uh it was uh that was a pretty incredible experience i mean of course very different in 87 to how it became subsequently and you know i think it was you know more like you know 50,000 people rather than you know 500,000 people that maybe that is a, the sort of today's glastonbury i don't know yeah. so what w- wasn't i think it was maybe three stages it was,
0: it was, i think there was the nme stage wasn't there there was
1: i think it was called the john Peel stage maybe or maybe it was the nme stage or something
0: or but it was some really good but i mean i suppose i can remember that period because i used to record the john Peel show on my trusty tdk d90 cassette and listen to it and you know it's so all those kind of shows just became embedded in my brain you know that's why i sort of yeah i sort of got to know the music really well at that stage and it it just seemed to all come out so much. There was like the Chesterfields, the Brilliant Corners, you know, the June Brides that you mentioned, then there was the Triffids and the Go-Betweens, and you know, it was just like endlessly good music, and then, you know, like I probably said, you know, bands like the Bundu Boys, or the early rap stuff, which also, yeah. had, and then Chicago House Music, so it was a very interesting show, and he loved No, I mean,
1: it. I, I, same, I used to listen to Peel avidly all through that, sort of, probably from the late 70s, um, and while, yeah, you get your fix of all your sort of punk favourites and things, but I think, as you say, what was really interesting about that show was the sheer eclecticism of it, you know, and it would be sort of Boon Boys, sort of High Life stuff, next to yes. the slips, next to whatever, the fall inevitably, you know, next to sort of reggae, and then, yeah. Sort yes, of, yeah, and then, then, then it was...
0: There was kind of 50s soul stuff that I'd have never heard if it hadn't been for John Peel just slipping it in and thinking yeah. on the Kent record label, which I thought was amazing. So you were, still, you were still very much, did the band, did it feel like this was going to be your thing for a bit of time or were you thinking, I need to go back to art school, this isn't oh. going to last that long?
1: Well, no, I mean, I think, um, I can't remember when I first took time out, but it must have been probably in 86, uh, we were just getting really busy and uh, we started doing tours. And I mean, we actually, Stephen Pastel, um, you know, from the Pastels was incredibly supportive to us. And uh, they were doing a wee sort of mini tour of a few dates in the north of England. And they took us uh, with them to do that. And that was our sort of first time playing outside of Scotland and uh, at those sort of early days. So we, we kind of quickly uh, became, you know, we were touring quite a lot, we really liked to play live, so we did that as much as possible. So, yeah, it became a wee bit difficult for me um, to be at art school. So, yeah, as I said, I had one year out, then I had two years out, then maybe another year out, and then I kind of, uh, um at the sort of, I think that was the end of 89 or so, Um, I had to kind of decide whether I was going to kind of, uh stay in or kind of go back but certainly for those first two or three years um no it was just it was super exciting and uh it was a real kind of ride sort of thing
0: yes so with the releases on precious recordings of london which has been put together by an amazing man in his room probably yeah yeah so there's four of these that have come out for the students which is the john Peel sessions from 86 and eighty seven, and then two Janice Long sessions, which yeah, eighty six to eighty seven. You must have got a lot of, <laughs> a lot, a lot of kind of. Um, yes, I can see why your record sales were so good. You know, because you got the because the Janice Long show was probably a little bit more popular, and it was earlier in the evening, and John Peel obviously just had the status. Yeah. So yes, you must have felt like it was all coming together so well. Yeah,
1: I mean, but again, you know, you just, just the sort. of idiotic kind of uh i don't know confidence of youth or something you know they just don't realize how lucky you are and and i don't think we weren't arrogant or kind of entitled or anything but you know i think we just thought oh this is great yeah oh Pew wants to do sex fantastic oh janice long brilliant you know let's do it and it just sort of seemed like you know at that time we were all completely committed to the band and you know i'd come out of art school and we weren't doing anything else you know so we were completely committed to it and all that time as i say we used to rehearse a lot all the time so we were really tight live and and really kind of good live band um but yeah it it just seemed like you know that's that that must be what happens kind of thing you get peel sessions you get janice long sessions you know this i don't know kind of happening in london and and it's been you know it's been fantastic you know nick godfrey from precious you know he just kind of approached us a wee while ago and uh just said how much Fanny had been and kind of, you know, really kind of wanted to hear these things again. And he, he was starting up Precious and he was, you know, showed his first couple of things he'd done and, and he said, well, let's do the whole four of them, you know, and we were just like, wow, fantastic, you know. <laughs> As you probably know, it's quite expensive to license stuff from the BBC, so yeah. it's quite a leap of faith and you know, and he's doing a lot of releases. Um and he's really been fantastic because, you know, you know, I've got a few uh what was the label used to do uh strange fruit used to do peel sessions and oh
0: yes strange fruit did it they
1: were like 12 inches but they were like almost like bargain price kind of their black and white covers yes. and a few of them but they were you know they were good they had the songs on them but but nick was like oh let's let's do it this you know the first ones he'd done their gatefold seven inch vinyl two records and you know that that was you know vinyl so difficult now you know just getting vinyl pressed and so many delays so for these ones he said let's try something else do you want to do 10 inches and we were like, we'll have wow yeah that sells it we always liked uh back in the day to do a kind of lot of different formats of things it was back in the day of the you know mid-80s multi-format you know your single could come out in five different versions so i remember i can't remember what it was maybe uh can't take no more or something with a sort of live 12 inch a picture disc 12 inch you know a colored vinyl 12 inch seven inches just all these things but so anyway uh he said let's do four 10 inch singles and we can fit the tracks on them with uh lots to spare and you know he's doing postcards and he's he's is incredible he's tracked down um you know bled and butcher and steve double and all these guys i managed to speak to steve double who did a lot of our photography uh back in the 80s who's a great guy lovely guy um but i couldn't get hold of his office and things and anyway uh nick did all that stuff and he found all these kind of uh, sessions from folk like bled and butcher that uh we hadn't seen for like 40 years so that was great fun and uh I always did the covers and the on and the early Soup Dragons releases and things, so uh, me and Nick have had a bit of fun, like, kind of tracking down all these things and trying to uh, get... But, you know, it's all money. So and it's quite
0: got... nice, because you all individually do the sleeve notes, don't you? You all take a turn on the different...
1: Yeah, things. that's right. We all did one of them each, so so that was quite nice. So... I think it's a really nice kind of package actually, the, the photo. Of them.
0: Amazing. And what was your reason for doing, you know, your second John Peel session, which was in <laughs> eighty-seven, you decided to do four covers instead, didn't you? Well, yeah, failed. the kids are all right, Purple Haze listens to Yeah. You. What, was the, what was the reason for that? Oh God, again, I can't I think uh,
1: I think uh I I, I can't remember exactly. Oh God, Sean's the one for this story. I think Peel had made a kind of offhand comment during the first session, uh, when it was getting played or maybe repeated or whatever. It'd be great to hear some cover versions from these guys or something. I can't remember, but I think we maybe if that's if that's how it happened, I think we maybe took that a wee bit too literally and <laughs> uh and decided we, we, we would kinda of do that. Probably a wee bit sort of smart arse and perhaps in retrospect. Uh, not such a great idea i don't know but we all i think we each uh chose a track and uh and we just we sort of did that and there were ones that maybe we were kind of uh periodically would sort of do live um although one that we used to do live all the time you know uh you know that time in you know when the band was kind of forming a lot of the stuff we were listening to uh was actually more 60s stuff rather than stuff that was actually coming out in 83 84 mm. 85 so of course early sid barrett era pink floyd uh and all the kind of nuggets stuff all the garage stuff um you know that kind of early sort of psychedelic thing was was really big we were really into the sort of barrett era floyd and we used to do a pretty mean uh, cover version of interstellar overdrive uh at gigs but uh which you might think a bit unlikely for the kind of 1985 era soup dragons but that was a good uh, live one but uh, we never did that at the session unfortunately i think that would have been uh, been quite a
0: Purple Haze is very ambitious actually, isn't it? Yeah.
1: But you see, Jim's a great guitar player. Sean's a good guitar player too, but uh, Jim, uh, I mean, it doesn't have the the most complex of the Hendrix sort of uh, things going on, but uh, yeah, difficult enough. But uh, Yes,
0: what impressive. So then, you had your sort of indie, you had various indie labels after you, but then you, you do you sign for a major for your first proper album?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we sang to Sire Records for that.
0: Um, it was C- was that Seymour Sire? Seymour uh, Stein? Was he Sire?
1: Yeah, that's that's it, you know, and of course, like everybody else who sang to Sire around that time, you know, we were just so blown away by, you know, all the things he'd done, the Ramones, you know, just all that kind of Sire Records thing, you know, which was, you know, one of the coolest kind of, major sort of labels at that time and i suppose you know you asked about the kind of london the management team you know they were kind of instrumental in that i think you know they uh you know they saw a longer term for the band and and wanted to try to get us a deal that would kind of help support that and help us to be able to I suppose, to kind of grow and to give a bit of space to be able to make the record, make some videos, do all that stuff. Um, So, yeah, I mean, as I recall, it was a pretty good deal. They got quite a lot of money off them. Um, But, you know, as is the way in that, I don't know, the 80s, you know, you know, what you know, most of that money went into the band and uh, into, you know, making records, doing the videos, you know. Um, You know what it's like? It's not, you know, no one's really making a great deal of money at that point from a band that's... uh, you know a working band who's you know selling enough records to kind of be able to make the next one but you know not exactly filling stadiums and uh making kind of platinum records so you know it was it was it was good and and they were sire were great you know um and again uh, big life were good because that you know they were a kind of buffer between us and the labels so uh and as I say, there's a guy called Tim Parry who managed us sort of day to day, and Tim Tim's a great guy. And in fact, Sean still works with Tim on some of his, uh, you know, the albums uh, he's been doing um, with David, and yeah. uh, you know, so so Tim Tim's a great guy, and uh, he really believed in the band, and uh, so they were great, you know. So so that was good. Um, you know i think inevitably um even by the time of that first album i mean i part of the reason for doing this uh this new release uh the album uh that's uh called raw tv products singles and rarities 85 to 88 that's coming out eminently on this last night from glasgow label um you know part of the reason for doing it because we thought about and maybe in the future we will do a kind of straight kind of re-release of uh, this is our art which was that first album uh, with some extras on it and different things you know that's still a possibility but in a way i think we always felt or i certainly always felt that we kind of missed a trick in not doing an album a first album a wee bit earlier um, you know, during that sort of the period that the these peel sessions and John um Janice Long sessions cover, uh where the band was in a bit more of its first kind of punky iteration and uh we there were a couple of albums actually that came out. One was licensed to sire before we actually signed to them uh for the american market which was basically a sort of compilation of the first three official singles and there was a similar one in france actually bizarrely called full meal which uh, i don't think anyone ever asked us about that but uh but they were kind of interesting and in that they were almost felt like a sort of first album singles and b-sides and things but you know not very carefully put together so for this record, um, as I say, there, there, there's lots of other stuff that could be reissued or re-released or reimagined, as is the want with sort of some of these albums these days. But we were just keen to put something out in the first instance anyway, that maybe you know bridge the gap between what was happening at the very beginning of the band, uh, and then you know before we got into that the first album proper on mm. sire. So it's more, you know more of the sort of independent things and all the things that we still kind of basically owned and, and could kind of access kind of fairly easily. So um, so that's what that album is. It is kind of uh, lots of things from those initial singles and uh, various other sort of rarities, other tracks, a couple of live things. My
0: um, oh God, we love archive. And when did you start to have that idea to um, go through the the archives and sort of put this together.
1: I mean, well, as actually, in fairness, it was uh, you know Cherry Red do a lot of these kind of reissues. Um, oh, they love them, don't they? Yeah, they, they do. They mainly CDs though, and we were kind of quite keen to do something in vinyl. So we did have a chat with them, and 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 they were great. You know, they were really positive, and uh, but you know, they have a particular way of doing that, and while. Uh, we were uh you know flattered to be sort of asked to do that with them we just kind of felt we wanted maybe a wee bit more sort of control over it and uh we definitely wanted it to be vinyl we are doing a cd actually as well uh of it uh, i've just finished knocking together the uh, the cover for that uh the last bits and pieces of that but unlike vinyl of course which takes months and months to get done done at the moment cds are incredibly quick so yeah. uh, so that should be uh
0: and this is coming out on last night from glasgow yeah and when's this are you hoping the cd is going to come out and then the vinyl
1: no they'll both be just at the same time we only really did the cd actually because uh some people we had the we had the album on pre-order uh for the last few months um once we got it all finished and got it all sorted out and I got the cover done and um, we put it. Last Night from Glasgow is a really interesting label. Um, they basically, they're basically basically a sort of crowdfunded uh, label uh, where they have um, a number of memberships where you kind of, uh, uh, that's how it started. And I had happened to do uh, one of their very first releases by a band called teen canteen i had done the cover for their album and uh, got to know it's a guy called dean smith who runs it and uh, got to know him and uh, i just it's a fantastic model where at that time you paid sort of 50 quid and a year and you got all the releases they put out um and that's grown over the last sort of five years or so and now they're, they're they are putting out a lot of different releases um and they they started a kind of an imprint as part of the label that was called past night from glasgow mm. and they've done some great they like they reissued the first bluebells album uh sister which is fantastic on you know all remastered all tightened up sounding absolutely fantastic and they've done a bunch of sort of uh, reissues like that so initially we, we talked to last night from glasgow about that but as i say in the end we really wanted to do something that was more like a kind of you know might have sounded like what a first album would have sounded like if it would come out in 1986 rather than 1988 sort of thing um, so it's not quite it's not a reissue of anything because it's put together carefully composed if you like from uh, various things that were around at the time uh, a lot of them released but a few things unreleased as well so yeah um, uh, so that was the sort of uh,
0: so does this, double, it. does this slightly double up with the release from Precious as well, or are you are they two quite separate things?
1: No, they're two. They're two quite separate things, really. You know, obviously the the Peel sessions and the Janice Long sessions are, you know, they're kind of uh, uh, you know quite discreet sort of events, if you like that. Uh, next kind of you know composed into the different kind of releases of the the different sessions and you know we worked hard to try and get photos for those that were uh even though the the time period of the whole thing is only about a year to try mm. to kind of find something that was a very early one for the peel sessions and then a wee bit later for maybe the second janice long one um whereas the i suppose the the album with last night from glasgow is uh is a wee bit more loosely, time-wise, you know, goes back to that very first demo and has something from that and then, you know, goes through a few unreleased things and, you know, parallel recordings uh, that uh, we did at the time that came out in different versions and other things or maybe on the the sessions as well um, and have the the first sort of singles um, uh, on those as well maybe up to sort of 87 uh on that but yeah it goes up to 88 i guess with yes. that your fame,
0: so when do you leave the band Cause this, is 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 it kind of soon after 88
1: yeah it's kind of the. it might have been subtitled the ross years this uh album i think so uh, yeah <laughs> i think it was about the end of 1989 the very beginning of 1990 i'd uh i think i went back to art school in uh, 89 Uh, you know in september and then i think i did another tour and then it just wasn't really working and i think we asked paul quinn if he would come in and do a tour while i tried to make up my mind Um, so he did that and then eventually as i say you know i realized that i would have to either commit to going back to art school full time or um you know leave completely and and uh keep going with the band but so I left then, and uh, like I was, you know, as I said, I had already started art school by the time the band started, so I was kind of, uh, I was quite committed to the sort of uh, visual art culture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, uh, you know, at that time, and also, you know, the last sort of record, which became the first sort of um, uh, post-me record uh Love God thing is called, is <laughs> it? Should know that. <laughs> um, of course, have yeah. uh, You know, we in the end we sort of programmed that. You know, it was moving much more towards sort of um electronic drums and things. So we kind of programmed that, and then I played sort of live symbols and percussion over the top of that. But you know, I just kind of thought, I don't know, it's not really. It, it, it was just the way it, there wasn't any major fallouts around like that. It was just the band is sort of developing in a particular direction, and as you know, you know bands are absolutely something more than the sum of its parts, and it becomes this kind of not a machine that sounds too cold, but it becomes a sort of entity with its own momentum, and you know actually the you know the individual members are extremely important but the band itself becomes this kind of uh vehicle that moves forward and i suppose i just felt a wee bit less kind of committed to it by that point and yes. uh
0: 'cause 'cause because i i suppose for me you know um i suppose that kind of indie world sort of goes from 83 to 87 you know and the smiths finish and then there's a sort of sense of a chapter finishing i know it was so dramatic um but a lot of those bands would begin to find it like well we're not going to go that <clears throat> much further you know they you know you can see that i'm not sure if it all finished around that time but you know the june brides the chesterfields the brilliant corners you know the stump big flame you know that was all kind of like okay and there was the other thing that came in was ecstasy and then suddenly this like the the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds are coming along and they want their soundtrack they don't really want to listen to something from five years ago and they want to invent something for themselves so you know, that kind of dance world begins and, you know, like I mentioned, Chicago House and Rave, Ambient Rave and, you know, obviously a different drug coming in the air and then eventually you had the sort of Seattle grunge scene as well. So did that kind of influence the direction of the band at all? Did you sort of feel like things are starting to change and I'm not quite so part of this world?
1: Yeah, I mean, personally, maybe I was feeling that. um, Although, I mean, I was at that time very into sort of uh tack head and on you sound and uh sort of adrian sherwood uh stuff uh, which wasn't quite that kind of uh mainstream dance uh culture that you're kind of referring to but you know there's a great drummer called keith leblanc who yeah. was sugar hill gang all that stuff but we met him a couple of times in london he's just a phenomenal drummer just absolutely incredible um so i was listening to a lot of that stuff and you know sean to his credit you know he was really kind of uh he was pushing that you know in the last couple of years i was in the band you know he was really keen to get things uh a bit funkier a bit dancier, and you know maybe part of that was that i was maybe a wee bit although i was kind of into that the kind of uh repetitive beats let's say i was maybe more coming out of a slightly more industrial kind of repetitive beat sort of uh, thing or, uh, I mean, obviously though on You Sound a lot of reggae things as well, but, you know, Sean was really interested in that stuff and had been, uh, you know, the last year I was in the band, uh, a lot of the rehearsals and actually um, kind of surprised by hearing a, a, a tape of a live gig um, where actually a lot of the songs were becoming sort of dancier and dancier even live when I was still in the band playing the drums so you know Sean had been quite keen to kind of develop that side of things so I think you know when I left that made that a wee bit easier to uh, to do that and then he he took the drums completely into this sort of production element of it and from there on in they were all completely programmed and he would sort of uh, do that in a studio context you know Paul Quinn obviously played he was a uh, part of the band and he played in the and all the live stuff but uh, I think Sean was you know took that into his remit as a song main songwriter and uh,
0: so did you really have to then focus on your own creative path you know because obviously the band keeps going and that's I mean it's kind of weird because I did an interview with a member of Womba and they'd had that kind of they had the 80s yeah we're we're fast then they had the big single tub thumping so everything's going really well and then the band gets to that point of like what should we do next and half of them roughly leave because they're the kind of non-musical non-musical people even i'm not saying you're the non-musical person but half of them leave the other half continue with the kind of more of a folk direction and i asked it was Dunstan. i said what would it felt like if the band had continued and then become really big again and he said yeah i don't know if i could have coped with that at all actually it was kind of i was kind of relieved that they kept the folk and they weren't that popular <laughs> yeah and then they disappeared it was like oh okay my i can yeah. kind of a, i just wonder what it was like for you in the sense of leaving and going well they oh shit, they're huge aren't they you know yeah I, just,
1: that, I mean that was uh yeah definitely it was uh a bit of an eye-opener to see like i don't know what six months, a year later, after I left the band, they're on top of the pops and things, after like you know, every single, after the first couple, always like recording, doing another uh, uh, you know, another one on tape with no vocals on it in case of top of the pops, you know so that you could kind of mime it but, you know, do the vocals live and things Um, and, you know, being close a couple of times to getting on top of the pops even with those uh, you know, the sort of middle sort of sort of eighty seven, eighty-eight singles um but it never happening yeah that was kind of I suppose that was a wee bit sort of difficult but I'd kind of made my decision I went back to art school and was having a great time there and you know subsequently had you know a fair bit of success um you know as a visual artist and you know over the last sort of you know well the, the sort of time after that you know a, basically traveled all over the world making exhibitions and you know uh, doing that so you know I, I I don't regret regret it at all you know I think if I hadn't left at that time you know I wouldn't have been able to get back into the kind yeah.
0: mm-hmm. of
1: Thing and you know that I think I'd have ultimately felt a lot worse about that than about leaving the band. And then you know, in many ways, I was you know really happy for them uh, to have some success. And you know, again, it's uh success is a sort of funny thing, you know, it's uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I know from you know, from obviously you know obviously we've we've kept uh you know particularly in the last sort of decade or so you know we've been you know all chatting regularly and all doing our own different things you know even musically as well you know i've been kept kind of recording things and got my studio here behind me at home and quite often i've done you know music things that go along with the various exhibitions i've done so i've done quite a few two records and CDs and different things. Uh, and as I say, did one just at the end of last year uh, on Last Night from Glasgow, which was a kind of compilation of various songs that I'd used in the last sort of 20 years over exhibitions and things. So, you know, I, I don't regret that. And yeah, I was, I was happy for them. I mean, I think in the end, it sort of fell apart a bit. And, you know, uh, like many bands, you know, um, it took a wee while after that just for things to kind of come back into focus let's say yes. but uh you
0: well, know it's, fair. it's yeah i mean the thing is i mean as you you know i can see because i'm just reading your you know your your stuff there you know you, you actually your career probably is a lot better for, for sort of walking away from the band when you did and what <laughs> happens next rather than having that you know the the sort of unfair, yeah or the tub thumping moment and then it's like then what do you do because it's like it's kind of probably messes with your mind even more thinking oh my god you know yeah that that kind of kind of going to the moon and then coming straight back again yeah and And the
1: (laughs) thing the thing that i actually you know i felt um there was a real pity about the whole thing was that you know sean is such a fantastic songwriter and he's written so many fantastic songs but it was just, you know, his and the band's tough luck. There's a bloody Stones b-side that uh, was the one that he'd made almost unrecognisable. But, uh, of course, you know what the Stones are like, so you get nothing from them in terms of, um, you know, all the publishing and everything. So, you know, although it was an extremely successful single, you know, without the kind of songwriting credit on it, you um, uh, it's, you know, not not quite the thing that's going to set you up for the rest of your life, which always seemed to me a real pity because, as I say, Sean had written so many brilliant, fantastic songs over that previous kind of five, six, seven, eight years. Um, it was a shame the one that kind of landed with the public wasn't one of his own, that he could have really bought the house in the country and retired on sort of thing. <laughs> but, you know, I remember, you know, 86, 87, we had... Uh, a tour manager um, who who lived in fucking Dagenham somewhere in some tower block overlooking the Ford factory, and sometimes we were staying in London and we were skint. We would stay at his place, um, and I remember. Uh, sitting there at that point watching a video VHS of course at that time of the stones in Hyde Park and it was really that version uh, of them doing I'm free which is really sort of ragged and loose and yeah it probably passed you by even if you've seen the film of it you know it's the one where they kind of release all the butterflies for Brian Jones and they're all dead and all the rest of it but there's a great version of I'm free on that they play there really I think it's Mick Taylor's first gig or something yes
0: He's, he's in the back of the car Sort of like,
1: yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> it was amazing, you know. But
1: I remember sitting, and that was really early, listening to that, and Sean saying, "Oh, that's a great song. You could really do something with that. We should do a cover version of that." And at that point, it never quite happened. So that was all hatching in his mind. uh even then, I think. Um But no, I was happy they they had some success, and you know, did did a lot of touring in the states and things. And uh,
0: so you when know, you? So with your. Career, you you go back to art school, you you finish your BA, then do you do a master's and then become a professor, a doctor, and then a professor? Later?
1: No, I mean I, I kind of did a master's at Glasgow School of Art because um, I. I, I I kind of wished actually when I'd done that I'd gone somewhere else but because I'd had all these years out I just wanted a bit of continuity for a few years but I did I set up an exchange thing with a school called California Institute of the Arts CalArts just which is just outside Los Angeles and spent kind of half a year there at the end in 92 um so that that was that was a really kind of good year actually and then after that I kind of worked for a couple of years and at that time, the Scottish Arts Council had a fantastic sort of residency in Amsterdam where you kind of could go for a year and you got a stipend. So I went there um, for a year. And then pretty much after that, my then girlfriend, now wife, she was doing a similar thing in Berlin. So went there for a sort of uh, a while after that, uh, which would have been like 94, I think. Um, and then actually the this guy David Harding, who had mentioned who was this kind of mentor at uh who started environmental art at Glasgow school of art he he asked me to come back and do a bit of teaching um so that was kind of slow you know uh I you know started off as a lecturer and uh you know worked your way kind of along the along the line sort of thing so yeah, and then as I say developed this project which uh In 94, I had this uh, tattoo on my back made that says Real Life um, that uh, actually came out of... uh um this california institute of the arts residency i sorted that out with a guy called tom lawson who's a scottish artist but had been running this magazine in new york with his partner susan morgan at the end of the 80s called real life magazine and it published the first things by uh richard prince uh kim gordon lots of artists barbara kruger jenny Holzer, all these kind of arts who were very influential in the 80s 90s um and uh when i was in la with tom doing this studying at the end of 92 we sort of hatched this plan they were going to the magazine sort of went from i think 79 to 82 or 3 but this was sort of ten years later. They were going to do a final version of it, and one drunken night, we kind of had to plan. I said, "Look, I want to get this tattoo made. That's going to be some sort of umbrella over this sort of work that I want to make. And uh, how about you pay for it, and uh, you could put it on the cover of the last issue of the magazine." So, so that's what we did. So that was the kind of start of it. So, so this there's a sort of, has been a sort of light motif for me over the last sort of twenty five years, and I've kind of. Uh, explored that in a lot of different uh, projects. Now it says Real Life is Dead, bit of an addition uh, in 2017. So anyway, this is this project I've been doing. Yeah, and then did a PhD about it in 2016. And uh, yeah, became a professor I think the next year or so. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've I've kind of done a lot of different things uh, with that uh, and a lot of different art forms, sculpture, installation, painting, really across the board. But as I say, I've done a lot of music things as well that I've gone alongside that and done various projects where I've given away electric guitars to teenagers and set up five different bands in a project project um, in edinburgh and worked with them for a couple of years uh, developing them we did then we did a record and had a launch of that and so lots of different things did a project in china a few years ago where i kind of made up this band with some of my students and uh we did a record that i kind of took over there and then did a kind of project when i went out to china with sort of chinese sort of students and we kind of had the sort of anglo sort of uh, chinese scottish sort of uh, orchestra sort of thing so lots of different things often exploring kind of music and uh Just a few years ago, I did a project here in Glasgow um, that was called Artists Who Make Music, Musicians Who Make Art um, at a little gallery. And that was a kind of exploration of, I suppose, the sort of creative impulses of, uh, you know, musicians and artists and what happens when, you know, you're doing the other one or you're using the sort of left-right-hand side of the brain or whatever. So that was a bit of a sort of exploration, actually, of a lot of... uh, a lot of arts and musicians who were sort of related to Glasgow School of Art in some way. So, you know, Orange Juice with or Dave McClyman and Edwin and, you know, the Bluebells, Franz Ferdinand, just all, every band you could imagine that sort of some relationship with Glasgow School of Art. Um, uh and you know we had their sort of musical things but then we had the artists who were making music and the musicians who were doing art sometimes for the covers but um also in other ways so so that was a really interesting sort of project so which i'm sort of trying to develop in different ways at the moment so
0: because i i did it was interesting you mentioned that because i did an interview with annan rankin who was in the associates yeah he went on to start a, a a sort of music course at one of those universities and had people like i think yeah. about. i mean there was some really good bands he developed so have yeah you, have you had your paths ever crossed
1: actually not alan rankin no but i mean it's it's slightly ironic that uh it was actually at a, a place called stowe college that he he did this um i think the label was called electric honey um, and uh, yeah, they did the first Bell and Sebastian record, the infamous Tiger Milk, a uh, thousand pressing, now worth uh, megabucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, ironically, um, the building that I work in now at Glasgow School of Art is the Stowe College building, because uh, after it had been Stowe College, it became Glasgow Kelvin College in the ever merging kind of further education, higher education uh, mix-up. And about five years ago, basically, we bought it off them and refurbished it for the, so that we could bring all the kind of departments of fine art together at Glasgow School of Art, which we've been kind of separated around in some different buildings. So the recording studio is still in the building. I mean, we haven't refurbed it yet, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. At the recording studio that Alan ran where these bell and sebastian records were made and also i think the first biffy Clyro one also yes, was there.
0: yes that's right
1: so it's, it's this incredible sort of history um but while while i don't know alan um uh it's interesting that i kind of uh when i'm in 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 work teaching all the students i uh, were in that building where all that stuff was taking place
0: yes amazing god you are so busy and this this kind of Getting the archives, it's great. That, does it feel really nice to sort of go back and sort of work on these, you know, what well, I know it's kind of um, precious is doing most of that work, but has it been a nice experience for yourself emotionally dealing with all this again?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been great. I mean, I think because maybe, um, you know, I I kind of specialise much more in visual arts and, uh, and teaching, I guess, and uh, education, you know, I was always able to have the music as a kind of joyous extra, and you know, uh, you know, you know, doing these, you know, various sort of cds of things and yeah, yeah. Things which i could just like you know my my thing i call it ross and the real lifers it's kind of all me really i do it all myself but <laughs> just makes it sound a bit more like a band so i could do all these things and be quite unprecious about it and i if i could get a gallery to support something to do a single you know i would do that and find that all really exciting but it was never my kind of livelihood so i can you know although you know Shashila's, she's is he's a producer at the bbc and sean's djing like mad and Jim actually is now doing a PhD as well and he's been teaching the last few years um I, it was very weird I, I did a reference for Jim which applied to the university of edinburgh to do a PhD in sort of musicology so it was uh, it was fantastic to to be able to do that but i think you know over the years for them you know they've been kind of working musicians and you know she led this fantastic future pilot aka project which i've occasionally done a couple of wee things with but that still goes on to this day and that's a really fantastic rich experimental um kind of project where it's all about collaboration involved uh, a lot of people so in a way you know it's been perhaps it's always been a bit easier for me to look back and think "Wow, this is a great thing that happened let's celebrate that you know and uh i don't You know, although I have been releasing music all the time, I don't, um, you know, not in the same way, let's say, that, you know, Sean's got his uh, new album with David McCallman coming out and what's out now and it's a fantastic album. But, you know, it's a new record, it's a new thing and uh, he wants that to be heard and seen. And similarly, Jim has his own solo things and he's a Snow Goose project, which is fantastic. And so, you know, they've had all their own things that are always kind of... uh, going on so i think it's uh it's maybe been always and for some reason i was the one who kept you know maybe it's because i left at a certain point that was when it was still kind of exciting to keep the nmes and keep the mm. old things and keep copies of all the proofs of the records and you know uh, test pressings and all that so i had quite a lot of stuff to be able to do some collages for the inner sleeve of all the kind of you know gig posters and you know ticket stubs and old badges and stuff like that so um but you know i think the the other guys they're really happy to do it as well you know it's uh as you say i think it kind of comes around and you know i think folk are interested in it and also you know we we've always been really kind of interested in the kind of art of it and the sleeves and, and all that stuff so again with the Doing a nice vinyl package of, of the album uh was important. So we spent, you know, did a new cover for that and we kinda spent a long time with that. So that's a nice thing because we always really enjoyed having something that was, you know, that classic thing with the you get your record home and pour over the sleeves and really be amazed and then you know, inner sleeve, fantastic, get the record out the and it and on and the <laughs> yeah and that's even before you put it on the turntable so we were keen to make those things nice
0: uh... it is like there's something about it you know they're so clean you know i just remember it all smelled beautiful when it was yeah
1: yeah
0: it was there was no fingers that marks there was no scratching it was just kind of like and you held it so you didn't put your you would know, wash your hands so you didn't put any grease on the inner. Behind.
1: Yeah, yeah. Jesus. I mean, and it just see- seems the time, sort of, you know, well, for whatever reason, the time is right that you know, and maybe it's just as everyone gets a bit older, like uh, not that any of these things are so expensive, but you know, you don't mind spending twenty five quid on a nice album of of a bunch of stuff that you know you kind of knew back in the day. Well, was I think
0: I think thick. vinyl. There is an aesthetic there, which I don't. I mean, I'd be amazed, but perhaps you know. Twenty years time people might be into cds but cds have just got there's just nothing beautiful about a cd um, really
1: i mean place. i think like many other people i've got kind of a depressing sort of 10 15 year gap of vinyl of you know up to about you know i don't know 92 93 or something like that's all vinyl then there's like 15 years of horrible cds yeah. most <laughs> of which are just like either got put into folders that are horrible or got taken into the car and got all trashed in the kind of footwell. So, you know, there's this sort of massive gap in everything. And, you know, I never stopped listening to music or buying music, but uh, it's... Uh...
0: The aesthetic just isn't the same, is it? But it's interesting, actually, because there's a few professors. There was um, Greg, who was in Big Flame, and also Amelia Fletcher as well from Tallulah Gosh who's a professor. And it's interesting because she's just kind of kept her you know career day job but just loves just messing around playing music and you know set up a small record label as well and um you know just enjoys it for what it is but when i asked her about it she said she just couldn't work out how you were ever going to make a living so it was like i'm going to do my studies and then i'm a lecturer and do that because it just isn't you know i just can't see how one's going to make any money but but yeah, has not stopped making music. And I think yeah. it's just so nice, you know. And and like I said, I think two years ago, she, you know, she and a person, I think it's her partner, have set up a little label and just loves putting out those kind of, Sarah rest yeah. sort of vibes you know yeah actually
1: I saw um there's a great weekend kind of uh, weekend festival called Glasgow's Pop <laughs> um a couple of months ago and they played in the the catenary wires whatever they called um which was great it was a sort of Saturday Sunday uh, headlined by Mozart State which was fantastic Lawrence's current uh, iteration of uh, of uh, that group which is brilliant but. Uh, you know lots lots of really nice things going on there and uh yeah they they played and uh that was nice and
0: it was very nice so look if you could have said something you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out is there any little word of wisdom that you would have just imparted even if they ignored it but you wouldn't oh actually just have a listen to this you know <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, maybe I would have said, hang on another six months till I'm free comes out and then go on top of the pops and then leave after that. And uh, <laughs> you can at least say to you, we're on top of the pops.
0: Yes, this is true. <laughs> it's funny that story, though, because I did an interview with Tony Basil who did that single Mickey. And, yeah. like, you know, she didn't earn a penny from it. It's like, oh my God, that's terrible.
1: She's yeah. really. Yeah, she's an incredible choreographer, wasn't she? Did work on so many kind of incredible videos and things and
0: Yeah, and worked with David Bowie on one of his kind of tours and stuff and you know, still doing things, but you know, that that kind of bitterness, you know, you don't want to be bitter, do you?
1: Yeah. I mean again that's a cover version of Mickey, wasn't it?
0: So... Yeah. And obviously it was like, Great, but when do I get paid? It's like
1: yeah <laughs> it's only uh, so far mechanical royalties will go, but uh,
0: yeah,
1: yeah that's a shame, yeah
0: it's amazing, thank you ever so much. This has been just yeah. been brilliant, and um, if you want, I can always send you the link and then you can always use it wherever and i'll say I'll also send it to um Nick as or, or sort of use it on that social media because yeah, I just think all the things he's been doing has just been so amazing, yeah. yeah. He started with the bmx bandits and then he's just been yeah. yeah just going through the whole and he did two the heavenly ones heavenly ones that amelia went into as well so yeah i think um yeah because there's okay just brief. there's cherry red which is good but then there's this kind of other company called optic nerve in preston that seemed to bring out these little kind of releases and then there's Fine. nick and then there's another guy in germany called uv who's got a record label called fire station that he loves finding these like flexi discs from the oh, world yeah. who, who never even put an album on and then just kind of finding a few tapes getting 12 tracks and then putting them out from the most obscure bands that you've never heard of from the uk in the 80s it's just a, a labor of love but i think yeah. it's
1: brilliant no and that's exactly what it is a labor of love because uh you know i think by the time you've kind of uh certainly with the uh, Precious by the time you've licensed all the tracks from the BBC and then you've kind of got your I mean, two two 45 RPM singles in a gatefold sleeve. I mean, you're just never gonna make any money out of that. So I think uh and you know, he's as I say, he's just been so great finding all the stuff for postcards and posters and extra bits and pieces and you know he just you can just tell he's an absolute fan and he just gets so into it and you know just found another session from somewhere you know what yeah you you know it's 50 quid a pop we can only have two from this you know but like choose two it'd be great you know and we'll do them as postcards and he's just been great to work
0: with he must love admin (laughs)
1: Oh God! <laughs> yeah, well, he must be the only one.
0: <laughs> yes, God, he does well. God, I tell you, that must be fun. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. This has been All amazing, right. and the, yeah, brilliant. So look, I'll keep in touch anyway. But thank yeah. again.
1: Okay, no problem. Nice to speak to you. All right. Bye Have on a good night. evening.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.